this season of Advent is a, a season that is characterized by the word waiting. Uh, waiting because it, it, it symbolizes a time for us to remember when the people of God waited and waited and waited and waited for the promised Messiah to come. But Advent, I think, sometimes for us can simply feel like waiting for Christmas to come without much spiritual significance because we love Christmas. And so what happens is, because we don't like waiting, we try to figure out how do we make this time go by fast so we can get to Christmas, and then we can wait a whole another 365 days to get back to Christmas. And so what do we do? We fill our schedule with parties. We fill our Netflix queue with Christmas movies. We fill our speakers with Christmas music because we don't like waiting. And we don't like waiting so much so that the New York Times did a study on us. And this is what they came to find. That we will not visit a website if it is 250 milliseconds slower than the competitor site. Which means if it's 0.25 seconds slower we will not visit that site anymore. Because, I mean, who has time to wait 0.25 seconds? That's just ridiculous. You know, you better have a fast site that is 0.25 seconds faster than anyone else or we're never going to visit again. That's how little we like waiting. And yet this time, this season of Advent, is calling us to wait, to actually place ourselves purposefully in a moment and a time of waiting. And waiting, I think, is good for us for many reasons. One of the reasons is, is that it, it forces us to realize that the present matters. It, this is something that really speaks to me because I'm very future-oriented. I'm always thinking about what's next and where we're going and what's happening. And yet in waiting, in moments of waiting, I'm forced to think, now actually matters. Today, the present matters. And I need to take a moment and look around and be grateful for the here and the now. But waiting also calls us to look ahead, right? That's the idea of waiting. We're waiting for something. And so we're looking ahead, anticipating, as we talked about last week, what is going to come. And so maybe you're waiting for a job promotion. You're waiting for a job. You're waiting for school to be over. You're waiting for healing. You're waiting for a relationship or a relationship to be fixed and mended. Maybe a child. Maybe you're waiting for success you're struggling with identity and you're waiting to find clarity and where God is directing you and who he's made you to be. We're waiting for all different types of things. And so waiting is not only calling us to realize that the present matters, but also that there's something ahead. And the beauty of Advent, and as we're going to see tonight in Isaiah 11, is that waiting forces us to realize that there is something greater ahead, but there's something great that's already been done. And that's what we see in this passage in Isaiah 11, that Waiting is actually a beautiful time for our soul and for who we are. It causes us to be content to understand what has been done that is great, but also to look forward to what is coming. And I think the reality is that waiting can challenge what we hope in. It can really ask us to really dive in and to ask ourselves, what are we hoping in for significance, for joy, for peace? The reality is that when we look at Isaiah 11 tonight, we're going to see that yes, there is an undated hope, that is living and ever-present, and it is an assurance for us as God's people that there is something coming that is a beautiful, assured hope, but also hope has come. As we've been singing during this Advent season, that hope has come, God with us, Emmanuel. And so the reality is, is that hope has come through a king. And that's what Isaiah begins to talk about in this prophecy 
hundreds of years before Bethlehem and Jesus was born. So let's dive in. Look at this passage in the very first verse. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So Isaiah starts out this passage, and he, the imagery that he wants to paint for you is one of a fallen tree. It's a stump. It's been cut down, and so if you're walking through the forest, it's not a big, beautiful tree that you're going to take a picture of. You're going to walk right past it because it's most likely dead, and it's no longer strong and fertile, and it's a stump. And so he says here that there is a stump, and from this stump, something is going to grow forth. This stump is essentially like a bird of paradise. If you're from Miami, if you're from South Florida, you know a bird of paradise. You cut it down in the yard, and you think, I killed the tree. No, you did not. That bird of paradise will come back with a vengeance. It is like impossible to wipe those things out. And so Isaiah is saying here that you may feel like the promises of God are like a stump. They've been cut down disregarded, you walk right past them, they're dead, they're not strong anymore. But he's saying that God has not forgotten his promises, and there's something that is going to grow off of this stump. He says that there will be one that will come from this stump, a shoot that will grow out, a branch that will grow off of this stump. And he says that this stump, this shoot is going to grow out, it's going to be very special. Notice what he says here, he says that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Meaning, the Spirit of the Lord will take residence in him. He will be the embodiment of the Spirit of the Lord. And so you know here that we're talking about a person because he says that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. So this shoot is a person, and he embodies the Spirit of the Lord. It is dwelling and living and active inside of him. And here's what that looks like. He begins to explain it. He says that he will have wisdom and understanding. So wisdom pertains to governing, and understanding pertains to the ability to understand and apply heart issues. So he has the ability to govern, and he has the ability to see the heart. Then it says that he will have counsel and might, meaning he will be strategic. He will make the right and appropriate decisions, but he will also be strong. He will be mighty. And then lastly, it says that he will have knowledge in the fear of the Lord. And knowledge in Scripture is the idea of understanding truth and then applying it to your life. So he will live a life of truth, not just knowing it, but applying it to his life. And he will also have the fear of the Lord, which is better understood as reverence. So he will be in a posture submitted to God the Father. So Isaiah is saying that there is this special person coming, the shoot from the root, the promises of God will be fulfilled in this person, and he will have the Spirit of God living and dwelling inside of him. He will be the embodiment of the Spirit of God. He will know how to govern with wisdom. He will have understanding to be able to see the heart. He will be able to be strategic and take the right actions with counsel. He will be strong and mighty. He will live a life of truth, and he will be submitted to God the Father in reverence. And he's not only special because of his nature, but he's special because he's a king. Notice what it says. It says that a shoot will, will sprout up, will shoot forth from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse is the father of David. David is the foremost king in Israel. He is regarded as the greatest king to ever rule. And every other king is compared to to David. He is heralded as the greatest. And so Isaiah is saying that someone is coming that is exceptional in every way, and he is special. 
And he comes from this royal line. He is, in fact, royal. He is a king. But the language here would have been really shocking. To us, when we read it, it's like the shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's, you know, father. Okay, that's great. But to an audience, to a Jewish audience, this would have been really shocking. Here's why. In the Old Testament, there's the book of Kings that talks about all the different kings. And they're all compared, not to Jesse, but to David. It says they're compared to their father, David. So there's this line of kings. They're compared to David because David is the greatest. He is the most exceptional king to ever rule. And the reality is, is that when you read the book of Kings and you read through the history of the Old Testament, every other king has failed. Failed in character, failed in rule. And yet, they're regarded and compared to David. But what does Isaiah say here? He does not say that this shoot will spring forth from the stump of David. He says, Jesse, the only other person in scripture that received this designation being compared to Jesse was David. So what is Isaiah saying? He's saying that there is someone coming that is a better David. He is coming and he is another David, but he is in fact better because he is special. He is unique. His character and his nature and his rule and his kingdom, as we will see, is even better than David's was. But not only is he a better David, verse 10 says that he is the root of Jesse. So that like will throw your mind off. Like, okay, he's the, sh- the shoot of Jesse, which is like a better David, but he's also the root of the stump. This is really beautiful, powerful language that Isaiah is saying. Hundreds of years before Christ is born, he is saying that someone is coming that is not only a better David, he is in fact the root support of the Messianic family. He is the beginning of it all. He is the father, if you will, in some sense, to Jesse. He is before Jesse, and he will come after at the same time. He is beginning and end, Alpha and Omega. He is both a better David, man, but he is also God. He is the root system. He is the support. He is the backbone, the foundation, the beginning of it all. So he is saying, Isaiah, at the very beginning, that there is a king coming that is God in the flesh. He is the root, and he is also the shoot. He will be better than David because his nature and his character is exceptional, unlike any person before him. And he's making a very bold claim, and unlike one of my favorite TV shows, Lost, he actually gives you some information. You know, Lost was a fabulous show. I could not stop watching it, even though every single episode you knew it was going to be a cliffhanger. They're going, to, they're going to put up more questions, and you're just going to be more confused, but you just got to keep watching it. Here, Isaiah says, listen, I know I'm making a very bold claim here. I'm saying that a king is coming that will be better than David, and he is, in fact, God in the flesh. And I'm going to actually give you some more information about what his rule will look like and also what his kingdom will be like, because it's important to understand that. And so he first says that his rule will be different. Unlike every other king that has failed either in character or in their rule, this king will not fail. He will be very different. Even David, who is the greatest of all kings, was a failure in many ways. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He made some poor decisions when he was a ruler. He says that this king will be different. Look at verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Meaning, He will be inwardly fixed on God the Father. That relationship will be his identity. He will be inwardly surrendered and submitted to God the Father. Delighted in the Lord, in in God the Father. He has no identity struggle. He knows who he is and he is who he is. 
One of my favorite TV shows of all time is The Office. Do I have any Office fans in the room? Okay, if you're not raising your hand, Netflix. You need to watch it. The Office is, of course, a mockumentary sitcom about boring office work culture. But the reason The Office is a brilliant show is because it's about the people. And the people are diverse and unique and completely captivating. And maybe you are watching The Office and you're, you know or you work with somebody that's a Michael Scott or a Pam Beasley or a Jim Halpert or a Dwight Schrute, or maybe you are them, but you don't want to admit it, right? But one of the, the central character in the show and one of my favorite characters is Michael Scott, the boss of The Office. And Michael Scott wants nothing more than to be loved, he just wants people to love him and to like him. There's a, in one of the episodes, they ask Michael Scott, would you rather be feared or loved? Here's what he says. Easy both. I want people to be so fearful of how much they love me. He, all he wants are his employees to be his best friends, just to love him and to think he's the greatest boss and funny. But he has no idea how to marry his desires with his actions. The tension and the awkwardness in some of his interactions, you can feel it. It, You almost want to turn the episode off because he doesn't know how to act. He continues to alienate people and push people away and make fun of people, yet he wants them to love him. He's a completely conflicted character. And what Isaiah is saying here is that this king that is coming is not conflicted in any way. He has no identity struggle. His character informs his desires and his desires correspond with his actions. He is consistent in every single way because he's delighted and rooted in the Lord. It says this king will rule very differently. It says that he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, meaning he has the ability to distinguish between appearance and reality. He will judge very differently because we judge how? By what we see and what we hear. This is the backbone and the cornerstone of gossip, right? This is in every single conversation you've been in, if there's gossip, you've heard this, right? Did you hear what so-and-so said? Did you see who he or she is with? I mean, I heard that and I saw them doing All of our judgments and the backbone of gossip is by what we see and what we hear. And we know that. We know that we are judged as people by what we see and what we hear. And so we are judged by how we look and our image and our appearance. And so we are very careful to fine-tune our image, right? Instagram is a great example of this. How many times on Instagram have you ever seen somebody put a photo in a bar with like no one there and they said, at the bar, really bored, no one's here, going home to go to sleep, I don't like my life, right? You don't see that. Here's what happens. Someone's at a bar, there's four people there, they figured out how to get all four people in the photo with a clever angle and some nice lighting, they take it, they do the filter, they edit it, you know, because they're really good, so they go into the editing tools and exposure and all the different stuff, and then they put this crazy caption, and it looks like that's this wild happy hour. But in reality, there's only four people there. They do that, why? Maybe you've done that in some other areas. Because you want people to think that you're at something fun. You're at something exciting. You want your appearance to be not actually what's reality. 
We're very mindful of how we look. We're very mindful of what events we attend and what events we don't. We're very mindful of what we eat and if we're working out because we want our appearance, our physical appearance, to be something that is loved and appreciated. We're very mindful about how much we reveal about our faith or the questions that we have or what we're working through because we know that we'll be judged by what we say, by what people hear. So we fine-tune our image and our appearance. I have a friend that's a social media expert, and I asked him, what was the deal with Snapchat? Some of you guys have Snapchat. I don't understand Snapchat. I, I, I understand a little bit now, but when, I, when it first came out, I was like, all I see is people shooting stuff out of their face and wearing cat ears. I don't understand why this is so cool and why everyone's doing this. I mean, who has time for this? So I was like, what is the draw for Snapchat? And he said something very interesting. He said, Snapchat is growing massively, and so many people are captivated by it because it's real. It's genuine. That in Snapchat, I don't have it, so this is what he told me, that it's in the moment. There are no filters besides the cat ears and the other stuff like that. It's actually what's happening now. Instead of finely tuned Facebook posts or Instagram pictures, it's really what's happening in the moment. And that because it's real and genuine, it's captivating. Isn't that interesting? That we live in a culture that is so concerned with appearance and image that Snapchat is growing by leaps and bounds and now Instagram has Instagram stories because people are drawn to something real, not packaged and finely tuned And it's drawing us in. And in some ways, it's courageous to share those things. That's the culture that we live in. A lot of people want to say that, you know, it's the millennials that have caused this obsession with image. But the reality is it's not true. This has always been an issue. We always have judged by what we see and what we hear. Battles have been won because people said, oh, that's just just a horse. Let that horse in. There's probably not people inside. I mean, come on. It's just a horse. The horse came in, right? Battle was over. People have been elevated to a positions that they didn't deserve based on their skill or their merit, but simply because of their appearance. It's been happening throughout the history of the world. The world was assumed flat. Why? Because it looked flat, right? There's no way this thing's round. It's flat. Everything's flat. We see, and so we judge. We hear, and so we judge. And maybe this was you, or maybe this is you now. I have a really hard time with faith because I can't see God and I've never heard him. See, we make judgments by what we see and what we hear in every different aspect of life. And what Isaiah is saying here is that this king that is coming is completely different from us. He does not judge by what he sees and what he hears. He does not judge by appearance. He judges by reality. Look at verse 4. It says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide equity for the meek of the earth. Meaning the status of a person does not matter. The appearance does not matter. He judges equally and fairly. He judges based upon reality, not appearance. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. He doesn't need any weapon to enforce authority. He does not need lobbyists. He does not need to manipulate. All he needs are his words. He enacts change how? Through his words. Very beginning of John's gospel, John starts out the story of Jesus and his gospel by saying that Jesus, this king, is the word. 
the message version puts it like this. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He saw the glory with, we saw the glory with our own eyes, this one-of-a-kind glory like father, like son, generous inside and out from start to finish. And John the Baptist pointed him out and called, this is the one, the one I told you was coming after me, but in fact was ahead of me. He has always been ahead of me and has always had the first word. This king is generous inside and out. He is consistent in his character. He judges righteously and justly. And he has always had the first word. He came after John the Baptist, but he was also ahead of him. He is the beginning and the end. He is a -a one-of-a-kind king. In verse 5, righteousness will be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins, meaning he is consistent. What is observable in him is that he is righteous and faithful. He is unlike any other person that has ever walked the face of this earth. He judges differently. He governs differently. He treats people differently. He is truly one of a kind. But not only does he rule differently, his kingdom is also different. Some of the most beautiful language you will read is verses 6 through 9. I want you to look at it and read it with me. And allow yourself to imagine what Isaiah is wanting you to see, to feel. He says that this is what his kingdom will look like. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the wean child, or the toddler, shall put his hand on the adder's den, or the viper's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Last week we looked in the book of Daniel, and Daniel talks about this kingdom that's going to come, and he says that it's like a small stone that's disregarded. It's viewed as less than all the other kingdoms of the world, but in fact, it's the most powerful of all kingdoms. It holds all authority. Isaiah in Isaiah 2 compares it to a mountain. He says it's like a mountain that encompasses the whole world and invites all people to come and ascend. And tonight, he carries that through in Isaiah 11. He says that this holy mountain will be a truly unique place. It will be a truly different type of kingdom. That the shoot and the root of Jesse, the beginning and the end, this truly unique king who is consistent in his character, who rules differently with justice and mercy, he will establish a kingdom where old adversities are reconciled. There will be a reconciliation of old adversities where the wolf and the lamb and the goat will lie together that the formerly divided will be united, wolf and lamb, leopard and goat. Children will not only lead calves, but they're going to lead lions and bears and wild animals. That hostility between animals at large will be removed. Notice that the cow, the bear, the lion, and the ox, they eat the same food. And they no longer eat each other. The reality here is that when you look on this in its face, you see that this kingdom is going to be marked by peace and love and unity, that really there's, there's a removal of all hostility in this kingdom. And it sounds really refreshing. You, you read that and you're like, that is beautiful. And not simply because every one of us here wish we had a pet lion without fear of our face being ripped off. And that can be a reality. It's going to be a reality, right? 
But the reason that this is beautiful is much deeper than just animals will finally get along and our relationship to animals will finally get along. There's a removal of hostility here in all levels of society and life that is true in his kingdom. Look at verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child, the toddler, shall put his hand on the viper's den. The imagery here is so powerful. The the cobra and the viper are among the most venomous and dangerous and lethal snakes in the world. And most of us don't like snakes. The idea of being near a snake is terrifying. But in this kingdom, a child will be playing with a cobra and a viper. When I was in uh, India with Jessica, we were walking down the street and there was a man on the corner and he was a uh, cobra snake handler. And so we're walking by and I see him and he takes the basket off of this small little basket and he begins to play the flute. And this cobra comes out and begins to dance, opens up its neck. And then when he makes a certain sound and gesture, the cobra will attack forward and snap. So I thought most likely his fangs are removed. And I need to touch this snake. I've always wanted to touch a cobra my entire life. I thought it's like my favorite snake. I don't even like snakes, but I like cobras. So I was like, I need to touch this snake. So I sat down next to the man, and he takes the basket off, lit off the basket, and he takes the flute, and he begins to play the song. And the cobra comes out of the basket and opens up its neck and just begins to dance back and forth. And he looks at me, and he says, are you ready to touch it? My gosh, my heart is beating I take two fingers, and I, the cobra's facing that way, and I see the scales protruding on the back of its neck, and I reach my fingers forward to touch the back of its neck, and snap! <laughs> he struck forward and attacked the guy in front of me, and you felt attacked in the moment. See, I wanted to do that because I wanted you to feel the tension, right? Do you feel that? Maybe you're, like, hyperventilating right now. That's how I felt in the moment. And if you imagine it, you think about being next to a cobra. Yeah, it's dancing and the guy's playing the flute, but it's a cobra. And if that thing snaps, that could be game over. See, in this kingdom, a child has no sense of what is dangerous and what is a, a bad decision. This child does not need its parents' To watch his parents or her parents to watch the child because the child has a pet cobra. The child can play with a viper. There is no hostility. There is no danger because it's been completely removed here. But the imagery here, this prophecy that Isaiah writes, is much deeper than even that. It's much deeper than the reality that all hostility between men and women and animals has been removed. It's deeper still. The prophecy here draws you back to the very first prophecy in all of Scripture, which happens in Genesis 3, 14, and 15, where after sin entered the world through the obedience of man and woman because of the temptation of the serpent, God gives some statements. And here's what he says. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring 
and her offspring, that there will be a consequence for this sin, and the consequence will be hostility between the snake and mankind. There will be this hostility between, to where you sense that tension. There is a genuine fear between snake and man. But it's deeper than that. He says that there will be hostility, not simply between humankind and snake, but also between what that serpent embodies and represents, which is sin and death and hostility itself, and the offspring of the woman, between the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And right at the end of that, the promise, the very first prophecy in all of Scripture comes to pass. It says this, He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, this prophecy is about the same person that Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 11. It's the person that we celebrate on Christmas. The king that has come will crush the head of the serpent, will crush the head of hostility on the cross. He will remove all hostility, division, sin, death itself. So the question is, how? How how is that actually accomplished? How is this kingdom brought into being? How is this a reality for us that hostility is removed between God and man and between human beings and between humans and animals? It says in the book of Colossians, and you were dead in your sin. Here's the reality for us. We are dead in our sin. We are in hostility. Hostility between each other, hostility between animals, hostility between us and God because of our sin. We are separated. We are removed. We are divided. But here's the good news. It says, but you, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So God did something. God came and removed the hostility. He took the record of your sin and your shame and your guilt, that very thing that brought about hostility and division, and he removed it. The idea is one of justification, meaning you are made right before God. God made you right in his eyes in that relationship, but still the question is how? He says in the next verse that he set it aside nailing it to the cross. There it is. He nailed it to the cross. A promised king that has come, that rules differently, and is bringing and establishing a different type of kingdom, and is a different nature, is a better David, as the beginning and the end. He removed hostility. He brought and ushered in this kingdom that is and will be by taking your hostility and my hostility, by putting it on his shoulders, by carrying it so that it would be set aside. So it would be removed. He crushed the head of hostility himself on the cross so that there would be no hostility between us through faith in Jesus Christ and God. And that one day we would be in a place in relationship with each other, in relationship with God, where there is completely no hostility, where the child will play with the cobra and the toddler will play with a viper, where in this kingdom, children will have pet snakes. And that will not be weird. All hostility has been removed. And so Isaiah promises here, he says, that this is what the king will do. And this is what his kingdom will be like. But for us, this is what the king has done. And this is what the kingdom is like and will be. And that is a beautiful promise and reality for us. And here is the good news, the greatest news of all. We're invited in. We're invited to experience and participate this. Look at verse 10 as he closes. 
In that day, the root of Jesse, the end of all things, the beginning and the end, he will stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This king, who is both the beginning and the end, will be like a signal. He will be like a lighthouse, drawing you in, drawing you home. A signal, it says, for all the peoples, for the peoples, meaning for all people, of all nations, of all colors, of all cultures, of all baggage and all brokenness. And the people feel like, there's no way I could come to God. It's for all people. And he is a signal drawing us in. He's a signal that, that's making you ask the question, could this really be true, who he's, Isaiah's prophesying about? Could Jesus really be who he says he is? Could he really be who other people say he is? And as you follow the signal and as you come to meet this king, it says that his resting place is glorious. That is translated in other places in scripture as home. He's saying that when you come to find this king, when you inquire of him, and when you come to meet him, you find home. I don't know about you, but that resonates with me because I'm looking for home in a million different arenas. I think we all are. We want to find home in work, in success, in relationships. We want deeper friendships to bring us home. There are so many different areas in life that we're trying to find home, and there are some areas that may feel like, you know, I'm almost there. I almost got it. I got peace and warmth and joy, all the images that come with the idea of home. I almost have it, but it's never quite, quite grasp it. But the reality is that we can find home if we just look in the right place. And Isaiah is saying that home is coming, but for us, home has come. And the people of God, as we celebrate in Advent, waited and they waited and they waited. And then 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, the king was born unsuspecting, cast aside like a stump that people just walk right past, but he was in fact the beginning and the end of all things. He was in fact a king who ruled differently, a kingdom that would be established as different. And he invites us in. He is a signal for all people to come in, to come and find home. And maybe you're thinking, you know what, Carter, that sounds great. But the reality is, that's really hard to apply. Like, it's really hard to apply to my life. It's really hard to believe in. Because if Jesus was here, and if he was ruling now justly, and if his kingdom was gracious and loving and warm and all these things you're talking about, sure, I'd sign up, I'd believe, I'd be a part of it. But maybe the reality is I'm just waiting because I have not seen, I have not heard what you're talking about. There's a band that I love. Their name is Manchester Orchestra. And back in 2006, I heard this line in a song that has stuck with me ever since. It's one of my favorite lines in any song. It says this, If seeing is believing, then believe we've lost our eyes. See, they're saying that if seeing is believing, then necessarily you have to believe that you have no eyes because you can't see your eyes. And you're thinking, Carter, I can see my eyes in the mirror. That's a dumb quote. But that's the point, isn't it? The only way you can see your eyes is through reflection. In order to see and believe that you have eyes, you have to see your eyes in a reflection. And this is the same reality of faith. Can we see God? No. But we can see his reflection. And we can believe. 
And we see his reflection because this reflection speaks. He speaks in God's word as we're reading tonight and as we process and read together and in community groups. And we come and we see that mystery was made reality, that this king that came 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, an unsuspecting town, came to bring home and came to bring hope and came to invite all people in regardless of who they are to join together and to be a part of his kingdom where all hostility is removed between others and also between him and God. And Christmas is about more than lights and parties and friends and family. Those are great things. It's about that reality and we celebrate that. But see, this reflection doesn't only speak through, we don't only see this reflection of Jesus Christ through a book, but we see it in each other. Because we see that those of us that have inquired of this king and come to find him and and run after the signal, though flawed and imperfect, but we see the reflection of Christ in each other. And that's why this is so important. Because we're reminded that seeing isn't necessarily believing. That when you see the reflection of God, of God with us in each other and in his word, the reality becomes true. That God is in fact the king who is unsuspected, the beginning and the end of all things that has come to rule differently, to establish a kingdom that is different, and he welcomes all people, including you, just as you are, to be a part of that kingdom with each other, with him, where hostility between you and God is removed, and by hostility between each other can be removed. And so Advent, for the people of God, was a time of waiting for the promised one to come. But for us, Advent is a time where that wait is over. The king has come. And yes, we are waiting for this kingdom that will come one day. But in this moment now, we can receive the grace and the love and the mercy of God because hostility between God and man has been removed through Jesus Christ if you'll just go to the signal. If you'll just look for the reflection in his word and in each other, you will come to find that God is in fact who he said he is. And he welcomes you with grace and mercy to come and find him. Let's pray.